message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad they're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and as always, the passage is also printed for you there in your worship folder. And kids, I'd like to invite you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a reference to Marvel movies. Marvel movies. Second, be listening for what the word hangry means. What does the word hangry mean? And third, be listening for a story from the Chronicles of Narnia about the character Edmund. About the character Edmund. Some of you will remember that we kicked off a new fall sermon series last week on the third book of the New Testament, which is the Gospel according to Luke. This is a historical eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're going to be moving through this account over the next few months leading up to the Advent season here at Trinity Grace on Sunday mornings. And last Sunday, Mike Curtis launched us off into this series as we considered the unique ministry of John the Baptist, who was sent to prepare the way for the Christ, the Lamb of God, who was coming to take away the sin of the world. Now, some of you will know, and we've mentioned it in the past, that Jesus was a common name in first century Israel. In fact, it was the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which literally means the Lord saves. In contrary to popular belief, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. He isn't Mr. Christ. No, Christ was a title. It means anointed one. It's analogous to calling someone a king. So Jesus is the name that he received from his mom and dad, and Christ is the title that signified Jesus was the Messiah or the anointed one who was sent to rescue his people from their sins. Well, the passage that we're about to read this morning happens just after Jesus goes public as the anointed one, as the Christ. You might know that for approximately 30 years, Jesus lived in relative obscurity until it was time for him to begin his public ministry. And before we read our passage, it would be good to set some context to what we're about to look at. Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist, and he experienced an extraordinary encounter with God the Father. You might remember that after he was baptized, he heard an audible voice from God affirming that he was God's beloved son in whom God the Father was well pleased. His baptism and this verbal affirmation from God the Father was the moment that Jesus goes public with his ministry. And right after he goes public, we see that he's sent into the wilderness to engage Satan over a 40-day period. Now, this is an interesting account because it could have only come from Jesus himself telling the story to his disciples through the course of his time with them on earth. And it's an important thing for Jesus to do to launch out into the wilderness for 40 days as he begins his public ministry because his 40-day temptation in the desert reveals a lot about who Jesus is and what kind of ministry he seeks to accomplish. As he gets started, the question is, what kind of Messiah would Jesus be? Would he use his power for personal ends? 
Did he intend to establish a mighty empire that would rule the world with an iron fist? Is he interested in spectacular and selfish miracles for his own benefit? Well, to answer those questions and to see how Jesus begins his public ministry, let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 4. You follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil took him to Jerusalem and set Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. For those of you who enjoy recently released movies, you might have begun wondering whether we'd ever see a new movie in the theater that was not associated with Marvel Comics. I mean, the Marvel movie series has certainly washed over us the past decade and people love this franchise. I've got friends that uh, that, that just simply love uh, Marvel movies. I know some friends who can't get enough of these movies and celebrate every time a new one is released, which has been a lot of celebration over the past decade. Now, I think there's lots of reasons these movies resonate with people. It can bring back a certain amount of nostalgia for some as they remember reading the comic books as children. The movies are always pretty high-budget affairs, and they bring a certain amount of excitement and suspense to moviegoers. They're incredibly well done. And on top of all of that, these movies seem to get at something deep inside each one of us, and that's the desire to see good overcome evil. We all want to see good overcome evil. If you step back and think about it, all the best stories and films, all the classics that we love, they play on this battle between good and evil. You think of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, Harry Potter and Voldemort, Aslan and the White Witch, the Fellowship of the Ring and the evil power of Sauron. We gravitate to this storyline of good versus evil because it's compelling. It's getting at something we all know to be true of our experience in this world, even if we can't quite put our finger on it. We're all longing for good to overcome evil. But we also feel that oftentimes we are no match for the evil we experience in this world. Sometimes evil just feels so overwhelming and pervasive. We intuitively know that we need someone bigger and more capable than ourselves if evil is ever going to really be defeated. Now, most people think of religion in moral terms. 
When people think of religion, they typically think in terms of right versus wrong. But I wonder if you've ever considered that those are not very compelling categories for people, generally speaking. And while morality, right and wrong, is very important, don't hear what I'm not saying, the main plot line of Christianity isn't morality. It's not right versus wrong. The main plot line of the Christian story instead taps into the question we all have as we survey our lives in this world. Will good triumph over evil? That's the main plot line of the scriptures. It's a story of good versus evil. It's the story of how the seed of the woman, Eve, will eventually make his way upon the scene to crush the head of the evil serpent. In this story, it comes to a pivotal point in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus and the devil come face to face for the first time in his ministry on earth. In Jesus, we get a hero who is flawless and capable, yet he's not detached. He draws close to us and the evil that we experience, and he wants to encounter it firsthand to do battle with it. And then he promises to one day finally and fully vanquish the evil that we find in this world. It's a compelling storyline. What we just read is one of the most dramatic scenes in all of the Gospels. It's the ultimate battle between good and evil. Jesus and the devil, a showdown in the desert. And this encounter with Satan acted to secure the identity and mission of Jesus. To to launch him out into his public ministry with confidence and with a strong foundation. And there are a lot of echoes from the Old Testament that you hear as you consider this passage. I wonder if you caught on to them. You might remember Adam in the Garden of Eden. He encountered Satan and his lies. Remember that in Genesis chapter 3? And Adam bought into the empty promises of Satan and he plunged humanity into sin and misery. And here in Luke chapter 4, we get a picture of Jesus, who Paul calls the second Adam in Romans chapter 5. He's our new representative who encounters Satan and his lies, but this time he stands strong in the face of temptation, succeeding where Adam had failed. You might remember Moses, the great leader of God's people in the Old Testament. He fasted for 40 days before receiving the law from God on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34. And here in Luke, we see Jesus fasting for 40 days before he moves out to unveil the gospel, the good news to the world at large. You might remember in the Old Testament that Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea and then they were tested in the wilderness for 40 years. And here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just come through the waters of baptism and it's followed by his testing in the wilderness over the course of 40 days. You hear the echoes. Jesus in this passage is being depicted as the second Adam in the perfect Israelite, the perfect person of God who comes to succeed where we had failed. And as we consider this passage, it makes sense to me at least to follow along with the three temptations using the flow of the passage to guide the sermon this morning. And so as we consider the three temptations that you see here, I want us to see how they answer three primary questions that we all ask in our relationship with God. Those questions are, who will you trust? What means will you use? And how will you know? Who will you trust? What means will you use? 
How will you know? Those are the questions we're going to be asking as we consider the three specific temptations that Jesus encounters. Let's start by considering the first temptation and asking the question, who will you trust? I wonder if you've ever heard of the term hangry. Even if you haven't heard the term, I'd be willing to bet that you've experienced the reality. It's when you're hungry and tired to the point where the smallest little thing can lead you to anger. You're hungry and angry, and there's no escape from being hangry until you get something to eat. Well, in our passage, Jesus is engaging in a 40-day fast, which can be physically done. I actually had a friend in college who did a 40-day fast, and as you might imagine, it was very difficult. Well, it should go without saying that during these 40 days in the desert, After they were up, Jesus was hungry. We'd have to make the argument that since he was the sinless son of God, he was not hangry, but he was genuinely hungry. Jesus' stomach is empty, and he's feeling the hunger pains. So it makes sense that the first temptation is directed at this felt need. The first temptation is an invitation by Satan for Jesus to use his power to supply legitimate felt needs. This specific temptation, it seems like low-hanging fruit for the devil. It's a very real need that seems to be so innocent, right? After all, it's just bread. We're not talking about turning stones into fattened calves and having a feast. Satan's simply going after Jesus' felt needs, inviting him to use his power to meet those innocent needs. And Satan sharpens his temptation, you might have noticed this, by throwing in a good measure of doubt about what God has already said about Jesus. You see the question in verse 3. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Satan calls his sonship into question. Now, this is how the devil works. It's how evil always works. It asks, is God really for you? It's exactly the kind of question that Satan threw at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he said, surely God didn't say you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden. He's holding out on you. His temptations are predicated on lies. Satan would love nothing more than for us to look at our felt needs, and all of us have them, and begin asking, can I really trust God? Maybe he's holding out on me. Well, Satan often uses our felt needs to get us to believe lies about God. Jesus here is hungry. He needs food. So it makes sense that the very first temptation is bread. Temptation so often targets our most intense felt needs because that's often where you and I are most vulnerable. And we all have felt needs. And boy, if you want to see us get flustered and anxious and irritable, If you want to see us try to justify any number of shortcuts in life, just mess with our felt needs. Think about our felt needs for a minute. Money. Maybe money gets tight. It's a felt need that demands to be addressed, doesn't it? So money gets tight and you take matters into your own hands and maybe exaggerate your production at work to get a raise. Maybe you stop the charitable giving to the ministries that you love. Maybe you cut corners on your taxes. Seems benign. But we have to be mindful that sin does not normally start with large decisions. It starts with little ones that slowly compound on each other until you have a bigger problem on your hands. Maybe your marriage gets difficult. 
Your spouse isn't emotionally responsive and you like some more engagement. It's a felt need. So you start lingering in conversations with a coworker, responding to texts with a little hint of flirtation to see if there's some kind of response back. Maybe your singleness becomes unbearable. So forget what God says about sex and relationships and you're willing to forfeit some of your values and priorities to satisfy your good desire for connection. It's a felt need. Maybe you feel overwhelmed and depressed with life. You need some relaxation. So you come home each day and turn to substances to numb the pain or to take away the boredom. Or maybe someone's wronged you. We have relational felt needs. You've been wounded. You need justice. And you rationalize hanging on to bitterness and gossip and smearing other people so that you might feel just a little bit better about your trouble. We see it here in Luke 4. The first temptation reminds us that evil will attack you at the place of your greatest need. Satan will come and whisper, does God want you to struggle financially? Does he really want you to stay stuck in a bad marriage? Does he really want you to be lonely the rest of your life? You can't count on him. He's holding out on you. Evil always questions the goodness of God. Satan comes and in his first temptation, he asks, who's going to provide for you? Who are you going to trust? And the ironic thing about this temptation is that turning stones to bread, it's not inherently evil. It's all about what that action would reveal about the heart of Jesus. It would reveal that he didn't ultimately trust in God's care and provision in his life. But we see Jesus face this temptation by responding with trust. When Satan goes after his felt needs, Jesus says that his felt needs aren't what's most important. There is more to us than our physical needs and desires. You are also a spiritual creature. And if you violate that aspect of your being, just like if you violated physical laws of nature, you will be in trouble. Damage will be done that we don't always immediately see, spiritually speaking. So Jesus answers using the scriptures from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, man shall not live being swayed back and forth by his felt needs, but by trust in God's goodness. Jesus answers by saying, I know I'm hungry but there are more important things in life than my immediate needs, and I'm going to trust God to provide for what's best. Jesus knows that he is there to serve others, not to meet his own needs, and if he makes this little decision, it could lead and would lead to big choices later on. Small temptations often send us into evil directions. To use an extreme example, just consider Hitler for a minute. You have to know that his small decisions in life, his small sins, compounded on one another and led to bigger sins. Hitler was born a sinner just like all of us were, but he wasn't necessarily born the monster that he became. It was a gradual descent of choices that led to such unspeakable evil. We've got to remember this principle when we engage in the smaller decisions that lead us away from God. It's not just an innocent visit to the tempting website. It's not just a bit of harmless workplace gossip. It's a small choice that might very well give birth to larger sins. 
It was the great Puritan John Owen who famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So that's the first temptation. And the question Jesus is implicitly answering in this temptation is, who will you trust to provide? Jesus withstands Satan's attraction by relying on God to provide for his needs. Now let's turn and consider a little bit more briefly the second temptation and the question that Satan implicitly asks, which is, what means will you use? What means will you use? We see the second temptation in verses 5 through 8 where the devil takes Jesus up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil says to Jesus, look at it, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now this temptation is a bit curious But you have to remember that Satan is described in the scriptures as the ruler of the kingdoms of the world. There is a sense in which Satan could make good on his offer here. If Jesus would just bow down to him, the devil promises him all that he sees. Now, nothing is wrong, you got to think, with Jesus wanting authority and glory. That's actually what Jesus left and it's where he's heading. Does Jesus want the kingdoms of the world? Absolutely he does. Power and authority is actually what he deserves most. So why was this temptation evil? What's wrong with Jesus taking the, de- uh, with Jesus taking the devil up on his offer? Well, why the end of power and authority is a good and right desire, the means that the devil offers would circumvent God's plan for obtaining those good ends. The devil is tempting Jesus to take the fast track to power and authority here, to avoid suffering, to avoid laying down his life, to bypass the idea of service and poverty of spirit, to forsake the lowly path of kindness, gentleness, and long-suffering. Satan is tempting Jesus with power and authority absent a cross. Forget about the means that God set forth to accomplish your mission of restoration and renewal. We can have some instant gratification here, the devil says. And Jesus responds to Satan once again by quoting Scripture using Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, when he says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus knows that if he worships God, then he has to embrace God's means to accomplish the right ends. Jesus says, I will get authority and I'm going to get the glory I deserve, but I've got to do it with a life of worship that follows God's appointed means, which includes laying down my privileges, entering into suffering, being misunderstood without defending myself, becoming a servant of all, moving toward a cross. Jesus shows us in this passage that the means matter just as much as the ends in God's economy. Jesus knew that he would have to take the lowly path, not the path of earthly glory. He knew that his path and God's call required a cross, not a crown. And what this means for us is that not every practical thing is a good thing. We have to think about following the ways of Jesus as we traffic in this world and seek to love our neighbors, seeking to bring about God's intentions through God's appointed means, not circumventing them. 
which normally looks like laying down privileges and serving others and being misunderstood and engaging with kindness and gentleness and patience, walking this world with tears in our eyes because Jesus says we should be poor in spirit. So we've seen that the second temptation is an implicit question that asks, what means will you use? Now let's turn and close by briefly considering the third temptation And the question that's asked, how will you know? We see the third temptation of Jesus in verses 9 through 12. And in this temptation, the devil is implicitly asking Jesus the question, how will you know that God wants your best? Or where will you find assurance? Once again, the devil questions the who who Jesus is by asking in verse 9, if you're the son of God, he prefaces this temptation uh, with, with doubt again. And you got to remember, Jesus had just been baptized. He just received the approval of God the Father. And so it makes sense that Satan is asking him if he wants some reassurance after that baptism. After all, people love certainty. We love to be certain. And this temptation is geared towards Jesus really, really knowing he was the Son of God. The devil says that if he literally does Psalm 91 then Jesus will know-know that God loves him. You might know, but you really want to know-know. Let's do this. If Jesus had given in to the devil's temptation here, basically he'd be saying, sure, you said those things, God, but it would be great to have some more proof. It would be great to finally put the matter to rest in my mind. This would really prove that I'm your beloved son with whom you're well-pleased. And in this temptation, you likely notice that the devil gets even more crafty and bold. Actually quoting scripture to tempt Jesus. The devil has heard Jesus relying on scripture and now he says, you believe in the word of God, don't you? Then step out on it and see if it holds up. The devil, like I said, is quoting Psalm 9111 here, but he does it with a malicious intent, twisting the text for evil purposes, taking it out of context and using God's word in a perverse way. But the bottom line of this temptation is that Jesus will either believe the voice of baptism, that he's the son of God with whom God is well pleased, or he will seek to obtain that assurance through this magnificent miracle. What Jesus is demonstrating for us in this passage is a quiet assurance that God does love him because he says he does. He's already heard it. This means we can stop looking for other signs or signals. We can stop setting God up to pass our tests. You may never have a great emotional experience or success in your business or a well put together family or renewed health. The question is, will you still believe that God loves you even if you never realize those things? Even if God doesn't pass those tests? Because those are not things that assure us of God's love. Instead, we have to allow his word to us to offer that assurance. His word alone and not the smaller tests that we set up for him to pass in our lives. Jesus quotes scripture again in the face of temptation, knowing that he can't put God to the test, even for good reasons. He chooses to trust and rest in what God has already said about him. And did you notice how Jesus responds to each temptation by quoting Scripture? Deuteronomy 6 through Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is interesting uh, stories about Israel in the wilderness. 
He quotes Deuteronomy 6 through 8. The word of God was his main grid for life. Jesus uses the scriptures to orient himself to the world. He places himself under the scriptures. It's the grid through which he discerns what is true in the face of confusion. He interpreted life through the truth of the scripture. He didn't allow life circumstances to interpret the scripture for him. The Bible helps Jesus and us to see the world the way that God sees it even in the midst of confusion and chaos. And if Jesus uses Scripture to fight temptation, we should not think that we can find a better way. It's the way that we are meant to fight temptation as well. What we see in this temptation is that we can take God at His word. We don't need to continually wonder if He loves us. In the final part of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Edmund, the character You might remember who had turned his back on his siblings and defected to the evil white witch, he returns. And upon his return, he goes on a long morning walk with Aslan. Aslan was the good character, the Jesus figure in the story, you might remember. And though the details of the conversation, they're not given to us in the story, it's obvious that Aslan had made clear to Edmund that he was forgiven, that he could be accepted back into the community. And after the walk, Aslan presents Edmund to his siblings and he says, here is your brother and there is no need to talk to him about what has passed. Well, having received that assurance, the white witch shows up and comes to speak to Aslan and this is how the book picks up. You have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. Friends, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. Jesus kept looking to God as Father and you and I are called to continue looking to Jesus because he is the one who remained faithful under extraordinary temptation. And he did it for you. He came to accomplish what you never could do on your own. In fact, he came to do what you failed to do. He came to reverse the miserable effects of the fall. He came to defeat evil so that you might live in peace. As the author of Hebrew reminds us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you stood strong when we were weak. We thank you for the way that you have come to defeat and to vanquish evil in our lives and in this world. And we pray that as we set our eyes upon you, as we adore you, as we gaze upon you, that the other voices in our life might be drowned out so that we might take our cues from what you want and what you command and what you desire. And we pray that you would give us the power to follow you in all of that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.